uh, I call this the tragedy of Ephraim. So we'll read the entire, uh, entire chapter. I'll begin reading at verse 1. Then the men of Ephraim gathered together, crossed over toward Zaphon, and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the people of Ammon, and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house down on you with fire. And Jephthah said to them, My people and I were in a great struggle with the people of Ammon. And when I called you, you did not deliver me out of their hands. So when I saw that you would not deliver me, I took my life in my hands and crossed over against the people of Ammon. And the Lord delivered them into my hands. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? Now Jephthah gathered together all the men of Gilead and fought against Ephraim. And the men of Gilead defeated Ephraim because they said, You Gileadites are fugitives of Ephraim among the Ephraimites and among the Manassites. The Gileadites seized the fords of the Jordan before the Ephraimites arrived. And when any Ephraimite who arrived, uh, uh, who escaped, said, Let me cross over. The men of Gilead would say to him, Are you an Ephraimite? And if he said no, then they would say to him, Then say, Shibboleth. He would say, Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. Then they would take him and kill him at the fords of the Jordan. There fell at that time 42,000 Ephraimites. And Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried among the cities of Gilead. After him, Ibsen of Bethlehem judged Israel. He had 30 sons. Then he gave away 30 daughters in marriage and uh, brought in 30 daughters from elsewhere for his sons. He judged Israel seven years. Then Ibsen died and was buried at Bethlehem. After him, Elon the Zebulonite judged Israel. He judged Israel ten years. And Elon the Zebulonite died and was buried at Aijalon in the country of Zebulun. After him, Abdon the son of Hillel the Pirathonite judged Israel. He had forty sons and thirty grandsons who rode on seventy young donkeys. He judged Israel eight years. Then Abdon the son of Hillel the Pirathonite died and was buried in Pirathon, in the land of Ephraim, in the mountains of the Amalekites. Amen. Well, whether we like it or not, we must confess that we all perhaps sometimes have this desire to be a somebody, as Davis would say, rather than a nobody. And sometimes it is inevitable that the somebodies look down on the nobodies, and the nobodies can't seem to stand the somebodies. All this stems from pride, and it produces strife, and it produces strife even among God's people. And certainly we see that here with Israel. We see that with Ephraim. Uh, as he goes to war against Gilead, as he goes to war against one of the tribe of Manasseh. Ephraim, the somebody, can't stand that Jephthah, the nobody, has scored a glorious victory, and they have something to say about that very thing. And the result is a war within Israel. Strife within continues to demonstrate how Israel is becoming more and more like the nations around them. There is no stability with one another. There is no stability in Israel And it's because they do not have that firm foundation that they have called upon and leaned upon, namely the Lord God of Israel. And so Israel continues to degenerate. Israel continues to look like that nation around them as they continue to violate the covenant that God had made with them. Now, thankfully, throughout the book of Judges, we've seen the main idea is Yahweh saves. Yahweh brings about salvation. Yahweh is good. Yahweh is kind. But Israel, further and further... Uh, throughout the book, as we move further into the book, rejects God and rejects his goodness and rejects his covenant. And certainly we've seen that in the Jephthah narrative. began at chapter 10. We saw Israel's degeneration, how many gods they served. 
Last time we saw Jephthah's glorious victory against the Ammonites. Then we saw it end in tragedy with his tragic vow concerning his daughter, who I believe he actually did sacrifice to God. And then today we uh, finish the Jephthah narrative. We come to its completion. Uh, And really this is the climax. Really this is where everything's driving in this narrative, even though that uh, last uh, several verses in the last chapter is depressing. Uh, the main climax uh, drives to what we see as Jephthah has to deal with the Ephraimites. And the problem is very clear, and it's a problem that we've seen already. It's the problem of pride, and this time the problem of pride is going to lead to further strife among God's people. Pride is the sin that keeps on giving. It's the sin that keeps on arising. It was a problem with uh, Ephraim during Gideon's day. It was a problem with Gideon himself. And certainly it's a problem with uh, Ephraim once again during the time of Jephthah as well. Because man is just so impressed with all the wonderful things that he does. Man is just so impressed with his own self-worth. And the outworking of pride, the outworking of pride leads to strife and quarreling. When the proud are not fond all over or praised without ceasing, when they are insulted... What happens? Strife, because strife occur, or what leads uh, rise out of this strife uh, leads to uh, warfare because no one would want to back down because we're so filled with pride. And so in Judges 12, Jephthah's tragic life comes to a climax with the warfare between Gilead and Ephraim. And in reality, it's the tragedy of Israel, it's the tragedy of Ephraim uh, that we see through this Jephthah narrative. And so it is the end of Jephthah's tragic life with this warfare between tribes. And we really do see how disastrous it is when brethren do not dwell together in unity. And so we'll look at this tragedy uh, under two headings this evening. First of all, we'll see a warring people in verses 1 through 7. And then secondly, we'll see a restless people in verses 8 through 15. So a warring people, verses 1 through 7. Then secondly, we'll see a restless people, verses 8 through 15. So let's first look at a warring people in verses 1 through 7. And notice we see the words of Jephthah continue. We see his negotiations. Uh, Last time we saw how how we negotiated with Gilead, how we negotiated with Ammon, how we negotiated with God, and that didn't go very well. And then tonight we see how he negotiates with Ephraim. And so we saw last time again with that tragic vow, we saw that tra- vow that seems, uh, that seems pious led to this tragic end with his daughter. And so then we drive to this end with this tragedy that comes to a close with the fight within, a warring people. And it's not with, en- uh, with enemies from without, but once again, the enemy is within. Again, we saw that during the time of Gideon. Yes, Gideon was able to kind of diffuse the situation he didn't really deal with Ephraim so much, although Ephraim did have a bee in their bonnet that they were not invited uh, to the battle. Uh, but Gad, he dealt with Gad. He, he, he brought some judgment upon Gad for not trusting and not following him. And then also in the end, Gideon had his own struggles within his own pride. But then it escalates further here with Ephraim having issues with Jephthah. And it escalates further because they do not like Jephthah. And so we see the pride of Ephraim in verse 1. They have to cross the Jordan. Remember, everything with the Jephthah narrative was on the, uh, the, the eastern side of the Jordan. It's on the side that uh, the Reubenites, Gadites, Manassites inherited. Uh, they didn't want to come into the land because they thought that land was good and Moses gave them that land. And so Ephraim has to engage in a bit of a trip 
They have to cross the river. They have to cross the ferry to be able to get across and call out the Jephthah and the Gileadites. So, verse 1. Then the men of Ephraim gathered together, crossed over toward Zaphon, which is on uh, the eastern side, and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the people of Ammon and did not call us to go with you? Why did you not come? Why did you not call upon us? And notice it escalates. Again, with Gideon, they reprimand him. With Gideon, they don't uh, say what we see at the end of verse 1. We will burn your house down on with you, uh, with you, uh, uh, on you with fire. And so we see that it escalates further. They don't respect Gilead. They don't like Jephthah. They don't like that Jephthah is a son of a harlot. And so rather than just try and work things out, they say, now we're going to bring the heat upon you. We're going to bring the, 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 the pain upon you because they do not like him. They view Jephthah uh, as that child of a harlot. And probably not just that, but they probably did not like the Gileadites. Now, the Gileadites were of the tribe of Manasseh, and Manasseh and Ephraim were of Joseph. And so they were all related. They're all uh, kin, but the Gileadites seemed to be the, the, child, the child that nobody talked about, the cousins that you didn't want to know about. And so Jephthah was of the cousins that you did not want to talk about. So they did not like him. And so they were, you know, they, had, they were derogatory towards Gilead. They were derogatory towards Jephthah. And we see this with some of the language uh, that we see uh, in verse 4. So Ephraim has pride. Why didn't you call upon us? Why didn't you ask us for help? And then we see uh, Jephthah's response in verse 2. And so Jephthah says to them, now again, he's had negotiations. One has gone well, the other two have not. And we're going to see that this third one does not go well either. But Jephthah, for the most part, is in the right here. He says, my people and I. Now that should be telling. That should be concerning. My people and I. Clearly there's a distinction. Clearly there's tribalism happening amongst the people of God. There is discord between the peoples. Discord between Ephraim and Gilead and Jephthah. And so he said to them, my great concern was not you. I was fighting a war. I wasn't concerned about how you would feel about everything that is going on. Sometimes in life, uh, there's things that you know, are more difficult, uh, more difficult. We have to understand there's degrees to the things that people deal with in life. There's tribulations in the, this world, but all agree that there are some levels to it. It's good for us to have perspective. If we stub our toe after that initial scream... We have to recognize it's probably one on the thing we need to be terrified the, the things we need to be terrified about scale. You know, warfare is a ten, and so Jephthah is not concerned with how Ephraim feels, but Ephraim is concerned with how Ephraim feels because Ephraim is only concerned about himself. And as we see, they do not seem to like one another. I mean, Jephthah's defending himself. He's defending himself with his reasoning. They don't like Jephthah. Jephthah does not like them. Sometimes the feeling is mutual. They view him as that son of a harlot. He views them as snooty and rich and does not want anything to do with them. And so we see that here with how this goes back and forth. I remember in seminary talking to a brother from Nova Scotia. And he talked about the stereotypes we have of the Vancouverites and the Nova Scotians. And he said, all the Nova Scotians think Vancouverites are just a bunch of hippie tree huggers. All the Vancouverites think all the Nova Scotians are just a bunch of toothless fishermen. It's just reality. I mean, the Jephthahites, the Ephraimites, they do not like one 
another. And so this war was going on. This life does not revolve around them. And so he says, I call, but he says, I called upon you. I had this war. I called when I called you. You, I, you did not deliver me out of their hands. I asked and you did not come. I asked and you did not provide. And so Ephraim does not have awareness. And as we've seen in the book of Hosea, they do not have self-awareness. A very, a very rare trait these days, not being aware of our own issues, our own struggles, and where we can grow. And certainly they were not aware of what Jephthah had asked of them. When I called you, you did not deliver me out of their hands. So no, so he says, I called upon you, you did not come to help. Then notice it was the Lord who delivered. So I, when I saw that you would not deliver me, I took my life in my hands and crossed over against the people of Ammon, and the Lord delivered them into my hand. What he's saying here is the Lord has confirmed that Jephthah is the one who would be the deliverer. We see how the Spirit of the Lord came upon him in chapter 11, verse 29, and then we see that the Lord provided Yes, there's that rash vow. Yes, there's tragedy with Jephthah. But God does bring a great victory through Jephthah. He's in the hall of faith for a reason in Hebrews chapter 11. Because by faith, he did subdue armies. By faith, he routed the Ammonites. Now, what he did with the vow was not by faith. But nonetheless, he did uh, do his task. He delivered and saved the people from the hands of the Ammonites. So God confirmed him. God affirmed, affirmed him by way of victory. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? I called upon you. I asked. I had my problems I was dealing with. I had to fight the Ammonites. And the Lord confirmed and delivered us out of the hand, or delivered the Ammonites into our hands. But then things escalate into this war, this civil war between Ephraim and Gilead. And so verse 4, we see this punishing password, Sibboleth or Shibboleth. Now, Jephthah gathered together all the men of Gilead and fought against Ephraim. So again, it's escalated into a civil war. We're being prepared for what's about to happen or what will happen at the end of the book in Judges chapter 20. We can't say we weren't warned. We can't say we didn't see it coming because there are little precursors to that as the book unfolds. And so we see that here. We see, now Jephthah gathered together all the men and they made war. Notice Jephthah's not great with words. I mean, again, one negotiation goes well, three do not. But he's good with the sword. I mean, he's a marauder. He's a, he's a fighter. He's a good man with the sword. And that seems to be his way of speaking. So they fight them and they defeat them. And the men of Gilead defeated Ephraim. And notice why. Because it was because of a byword. And probably more than just a byword, but because they said, you, the Gileadites, are fugitives of Ephraim among the Ephraimites and among the Manassites. How they spoke, how they functioned, uh, uh, they were viewed as this, uh, uh, this, again, this outcast. This idea of fugitive carries the idea of being a derogatory term. They were the children on the eastern side. They were the scum who inherited that side of the, of, the, of the Jordan rather than being part of the mainland. The Ephraimites were like, we're the purists. We're the right ones. We got it right. But you, on the other hand, are not part of us. So you are the fugitives. You're the one who have run, uh, 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 
ran away. You're the ones who are um, not part of us. So, you Gileadites are fugitives of Ephraim among the Ephraimites and among the Manassites. And so there's this war, there's this reversal uh, that happens. The Gileadites seized the fords of the Jordan before the Ephraimites, and when any Ephraimite... Now what's interesting, the word that is used there is the same word we see for fugitive. Now they become the fugitives. The idea of fugitive carries the idea of one who escapes in a time of war. And so there's no indication that there was any warfare prior to this between Ephraim and Gilead. But nonetheless, again, the people of Ephraim uh, looked down upon the people of Gilead. Now the tables have turned. That's what judgment is. Judgment is reversal. We've seen a lot of that in the book of Hosea, these reversals that happen back to Egypt, uh, which, is, uh, go, which is what happens by way when Assyria comes and uh, brings them into captivity. But it's going back to Egypt, going back to, ca- to captivity, that reversal of the exodus. And so we see that here. The Gileadites, they take the fords of the Jordan before the Ephraimites, before they cross over, and any Ephraimite who escaped, anyone who was a fugitive, and so they would play this game called Password. Let me cross over, the men of Gilead would say to him. They determined the enemy by how they would speak. Even people from different, or the same country can speak differently. Think of all the accents in England. Even think about Americans and Canadians. I mean, we might look the same, but we say a lot of things very differently. And so we see this with this word, shibboleth and sibboleth, how they would say it. the same word is meant to be in view. What is a shibboleth? Uh, what does that mean? What does that uh, uh, refer to? And so if he said no, then they would say to him, then say shibboleth. Then say this specific word, which mean, just means flowing stream. And he would say sibboleth. He can't say the sh part of it because he's got a different accent. He can't say it because it is very different. Again, it's like Canadians trying to say roof in America or Canadians trying to say creek in America. I heard the term crick the other day or rough. How do you know that one is from another part by how they say uh, certain things? And so it is by way of shibboleth that they determined whether one was of Ephraim or one was of Gilead. And so the Gileadites said shibboleth, but the Ephraimites couldn't say the sh part of it. And so they would then say sibboleth. Now it's an inconsequential thing, but it does, is used here as a test of allegiance. It is used here as a test uh, to show which one was of Gilead and which one was Ephraim. It's how they determined the tribal lines. The s or sh had major consequences. And so we get the idea of shibboleth from this. The idea of taking a little inconsequential thing and making it a test of allegiance that God did not give. Now in warfare time, uh, this password is perfectly legitimate. Uh, it's sad to see uh, as there is some a, 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 infighting between the people of Israel, uh, within the people of Israel. Um, but it is an inconsequential. A little change uh, can be life or death. And he would say, Sibboleth, for he cannot pronounce it right. Then they would take him and kill him at the fords of the Jordan. There fell at that time 42,000 Ephraimites. Now that 42,000 includes the entire battle, not just the killing uh, at the, uh, at the, uh, the crossing uh, of the Jordan. Now the fords aspect is also mentioned in 328. 
Uh, maybe there's some contrast going on. Uh, you know, the Bible is selective. God is selective with what he includes and what he says. And in 328, we see that's when Ehud comes and he takes back the fords uh, from the Moabites. And he takes it back from uh, the enemies uh, of God. And again, maybe there's a contrast here. Enemy without Moab, now an enemy within, namely uh, Ephraim. And so there's this kind of, that nasty scene kind of ends uh, with 42,000 dying. And then Jephthah, the end of his life, we see in verse 7, he judged Israel six years, died with no children. And then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried among the cities of Gilead. Now, I think the clear application for this is the problem of strife and discord. And it's strife and discord without God and following our own ways. And when we don't follow God and when there's strife, it leads to what? Instability. There is instability in our pride. There's instability in our own way. There's instability when we seek to follow the things of ourself rather than the things of God. There's instability when we are impressed by our own self-importance. And we've seen pride with Gideon. And we saw uh, pride in James 4 when we looked at Gideon. Why do people war? Why do people fight? Why do people have problems with one another? It is because we are proud. Whether we want to admit it or not, we just must confess it's because we are proud. We don't like to think that we're wrong. We don't like to be told that we're wrong. We don't like to be challenged. Now, you know, Jephthah doesn't like to be challenged. He doesn't like that he's, he's the deliverer, he's the savior, but he doesn't like that he's challenged either by his people that he cannot stand. But in James chapter 4, we see, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war. You do not have because you do not ask. Then we see, and he goes on to talk about how God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. But before that, talking about wisdom from above, it's pure in verse 17 of chapter 3, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield. Are proud people willing to yield? Are proud people willing to admit they were wrong? Are proud people willing to, A, recognize that they probably don't need to speak when they should, and B, are proud people willing to receive that correction? See, but when we think about leadership, leaders are not above correction, right? So there's this tension sometimes. As a leader, I must confess, sometimes when people come to me and challenge me, I kind of think, like Jephthah, I think, what are you doing? Why are you challenging me? I'm the pastor. I'm the one with the degrees. Why, you know, why are you doing that? But I, I'm not above being uh, challenged. I'm not above, I'm not challenged. I'm not above rebuke. Or I'm not above uh, being reproved. I'm not above those sorts of things. But young people, on the other hand, must recognize that they need to submit to the elders. They must rec- There's a balance, isn't there? There's a balance we must follow with respect to that because on both sides, we think that A, we have a voice and think B, I deserve the voice or think, look at me, I have the voice and uh, should, um, we lord it over uh, rather than uh, yield. So being willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, Ephraim doesn't tick that box, and without hypocrisy. 
Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Again, Davis usually nails it. And he says, the Ephraimites always feel they must dominate. They must control. They must be recognized. Nor is it a peculiar, peculiar, I can't say it. Nor is it just an Ephraimite or Israelite problem. It flourishes in the Christian fellowship. How we want to be the ones on Jesus' varsity squad. How difficult it is for me to rejoice in God's saving work when I'm not the Christian celebrity in the middle of it. We don't like to play the Christian game unless people will appropriately stroke our egos for doing so. One thing I've often wondered, brethren, is people come into our church and they see that we don't have a million things going on or we don't have their specific ministry. I wonder if it's one reason people find it difficult to transition to our churches when you compare it to others. Because perhaps they were a big fish in that pond in another church. Perhaps they did have their special ministry that they engaged in. When, we, when you come here, we don't ask people to do much, really. And even then, that's hard for people. I mean, come to church, come to prayer, come on Wednesday. I mean, again, if you're providentially hindered, I get all that. But a lot of people are not providentially hindered. They just don't come. But if it was their special ministry, they would be there in a heartbeat, wouldn't they? It shows our pride. It shows our arrogance. It shows that we are impressed with ourselves. Now, all of this instability with pride does then lead to instability in God's house. Now, we ought to have realistic expectations. A, we're going to be proud. (laughs) And B, people are going to be proud. And see, there's going to be sins that happen among the people of God. That's why there are commands, A, to humble ourselves, and B, to what? Forbear. Forgive and forbear. That's why you have James saying, be willing to yield. Why? Because we're not willing to yield. Because we're not willing to forbear. Because we're not willing to forgive. We're not willing to hold out olive branches, even if you're in the right. Even if you're the one who there's a conflict, a quarrel, or an argument that happened. Now, usually it always takes two to tangle, and some sins always emerge. But if you were more in the right than them, we still don't want to hold out an olive branch. Hey, I'm sorry for my part. I'm sorry for what I did. Let's try and uh, resolve this conflict. People don't want to do that in their marriages. People don't want to do that in their families. They don't want to do that uh, uh, with their children. See, brother, we need to be willing to yield. And we need to be willing uh, to yield uh, among the people of God. And then, often we're unwilling to follow biblical resolution. We don't want to follow God's word. Again, I just talked about that. We're too proud to seek forgiveness. Too proud to try and clear things up. May God humble us. May God recognize that he is good, he is gracious, he humbles us, and may he recognize, uh, help us recognize that uh, we don't deserve much, but he is good, and may he help us to yield to others. So that is really where strife and discord lead. It leads to a warring people, which we see very clearly in verses 1 through 7. Let's then now turn to a restless people in verses 8 through 15. I could have said a dead people. I honestly don't know what to do with these verses sometimes, with these minor judges, right? Tola and Jer, and now we come to Ibzan, Elon, and Abdon, and my kids got a kick out of those names when I said them at the dinner table today. Uh, but we see there's some things we can glean from them. It's probably not going to take a whole lot of time, but 
uh, there's probably a few things we can see, some things as a warning and some things as an encouragement. And most of what we see with them is encouragement. I think that's why they're here. Uh, but there, are, there is one thing we ought to notice uh, that we see with the length of their judgeship, with all three of these ones and what also we see with Jephthah as well. And so I think we can see how restless the people of God are and how quickly a restless people uh, become a dead people. And so did you notice with Tola and Jer, those judges, even though there's very little about them, they reign relatively long, 23 and 22 years. And do you notice when we've read other judges, even Samson reigns 20 years, right, or judges 20 years, but... I mean, we have Othniel, 40 years. We have Ehud, 80 years. We have Barak, 40 years. We have Gideon, 40 years. What about Jephthah, 6? What about Ibzan, uh, 7? What about Elon, 10? What about Abdon, 8? And so notice how relatively short, not necessarily an age for these ones. We see God gives some of these judges a long age, but how quickly they pass how quickly their usefulness ends, how quickly they die uh, before there we could say that they've been used for God, uh, by God for a long time. And it highlights how little rest there is for the people of God. Six years, seven years, ten years, eight years. Usually if you find a good king, you want him to reign for a long period of time. So there's a long period of relative peace. But when there's succession, usually indicates some sort of unrest. And there hasn't been rest in the land for a very long time as we read the book. And rest departs from the land. They are a restless people. They are restless because they were not resting in the things of God. And when you don't rest, you die quickly. And death is coming quickly for Israel as they become more and more like the nation around them. So that's, that's kind of the warning we see, I think, from these, from these verses here. But there are some encouraging things that we see. I think we do see how saving and stable God is. Now, again, these servants are obscure, right? You know, the, again, the Bible is selective. You know, perhaps they were more interesting uh, than what we see in the verses we have of them. It's just that Yahweh chooses what is here and what isn't. It's important to note with this that the Bible is not about us. <laughs> I mean, as we read the scriptures, yes, some men take up more time and usually there's more information. One thing the commentators point out today is the men who get a lot of air time, all their dirty laundry is aired out, isn't it? All their unsavory things that they do. I mean, they see it. Sometimes you just want a short and you kill the Philistines with an ox goat. That's all you need sometimes, right? That's, if that's all people remember you for, that's probably better than, you know, sacrificing your daughter based upon a vow that you made. I mean... Obscurity ain't such a bad thing, because the Bible is not about us. It's about God and what he does for us. And we really should be okay with being nobodies in God's plan, because the plan is about God. And he knows what is best for his plan. He'll use who he will use for his plan. And sometimes that might mean that nobody knows your name. And that's perfectly fine, because let's be honest, most saints, we don't know their name. And as I said, I think last time or a couple times ago, I think actually it was with Tola, so two times ago, Tola and Jer. Uh, perhaps the best preacher, I've heard someone say, the best preacher out there is the one we've never heard of, the one we don't know their name. 
They're probably out there. And I said, there are some preachers that are famous that I'm not very impressed by. Not that I'm the arbiter of who's the best preacher or not. Uh, but just saying that perhaps the ones we don't know uh, are the ones that could be the best in the plan of God. So obscure servants whom God saves and obscure servants whom God does use to save, they do judge Israel. All three of them judge Israel. Uh, they are still his servants, but they are obscure. But notice also, in contrast with Jephthah, they're fruitful servants. Jephthah had one daughter and he sacrifices her. And notice Tola, and well, I guess Jer, not so much Tola, but Jer, he's got quite a few sons. I think that's meant to be bookended. The minor judges are bookending, are functioning as the, the bread in the sandwich of the Jephthah narrative. And we see that fruitfulness is with God in doing what he says. That's a lesson for Israel as well. We see that Ibsen had 30 sons. And not just 30 sons, 30 daughters. He gave away 30 daughters in marriage and brought in 30 daughters from elsewhere for his sons. So he was fruitful. We see the same. We don't have sons or daughters for Elon, but we do have uh, sons and grandsons for Abdon. Verse 14, he had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70, uh, 70 donkeys. And so we see they're fruitful in contrast with Jephthah. It's a lesson for Israel. And despite all of the tragedy, and there's more tragedy that is going to come in this book, we see it is with Yahweh where life lies. It is with Yahweh where one can perpetuate life. It is with Yahweh if the people of Israel do what it's right, according to the terms of the Old Covenant, they shall receive the blessings from Yahweh. But they don't do that. They can approach unto God by way of sacrifice, even for the Old Covenant, not savingly, but according to the terms of the Old Covenant, to have a good life in the land. But they don't. They sacrifice to the Baals. They sacrifice to the Asherahs. And what we're going to see is when one is, uh, what happens is Israel is going to be more like Jephthah than they are like Ibsen and Abdon. So it's a good lesson. And with that too, there is relative stability uh, with the sons and daughters. I mean, uh, their ability to give daughters highlights there's some stability, even a time of relative unrest. Uh, Abdon can ride his donkeys, so he can ride about, so things seem to be okay there. He has this ability to see his grandsons. Abdon has that ability. He lives a long life, but there is also a warning. Abdon may have been able to ride his donkeys and see his children, but he didn't see the peace of Israel, did he? Because there's unrest. So there's good things, there's blessings, but they're tainted. They're meant to be that way. I mean, there's good things that God does through way, by way of Jephthah, but it's tainted with respect to what we see with the vow. So obscure servants, fruitful servants, and then restored servants. So this is what we see with Abdon especially uh, in verses 13 through 15, but mainly verse 15. Now again, these minor judges are tough to interpret, and maybe I'm making too big a deal of this, but note the tribe of Abdon. And that's what is said in verse 15. Then Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Pirithonite, died and was buried in Pirithon in the land of Ephraim. We were just reading about Ephraim just now, 15 minutes ago. And what were they doing? 
They're engaging in warfare. What do we read in, in, in Judges chapter 8? They're angry that Gideon did not call, ask them to come and help. Ephraim has not looked good for a while. And yet here we have one who receives an honorable burial from Ephraim. An honorable burial. And notice where? In the mountains of the Amalekites. A man from the same tribe as the somebodies causing strife in Israel is the same one who is buried. They haven't had a noble man, really, since Joshua. Remember, Joshua is of the tribe of Ephraim. And perhaps there is some connection with the the reference to the Amalekites. Remember, again, God is selective. He highlights here very clearly in the mountains of the Amalekites. I don't know for sure. The Amalekites have been the sidekicks throughout the book of Judges. If you do a concordant search on the Amalekites, we see it was Ammon and the Amalekites, Moab and the Amalekites, Sidonians and the Amalekites. This goes all the way back to Exodus chapter 17, how God is, uh, God is going to be at war with the Amalekites from generation to generation. But one thing that's interesting is there was a time when Ephraim was ready to go to war in the book of Judges. He hasn't been so good in Judges 11 or Judges 12 or Judges 8, but he was pretty good in Judges 5. In Judges 5, there was more unity during the time of Barak and time of Deborah. And we see in verse 14 of Deborah's song, a song of Yahweh's people, more of this unity that's happening there from Ephraim for those whose roots were in Amalek. They were ready to go and deal with the Amalekites. And notice they go after you, Benjamin, with your peoples. They were ready to go and they were ready to fight. They're ready to fight side by side with their brethren. And again, Joshua, the Ephraimite, was the one who fought against the Amalekites. And so there is this reminder here. There is this reminder of God's restoration. But there is a reminder of what the brethren did, of what Ephraim did, what they once were, and what they could be under God Almighty if they honor and do what he says. So I think that's what we can get from verse 15. Um, But the problem still remains. There is still sin and one clear problem that still remains is they died. I mean, we get like a fourfold succession. Jephthah died. Ibsen died. Elon died. Abdon died. I mean, they all die. I mean, that's the, 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 the thing, is that these judges are not the ultimate savior, are they? They're not the one who will bring about the ultimate so great salvation. That is with God. That's why the lesson throughout this entire chapter is life and stability is with God. Death and instability is with man and our own sin, but life and stability is with God and by God's ways. And we can be stable in three ways. We can be stable in the providence of God. Not saying there's no suffering, not saying there's no pain and sorrow. There are frowning providence that God brings and there are mysterious providences for our good. And there are many things that we can't make sense of. But several of the commentators highlighted the providence of God and how mysterious it is. Why does Jephthah only have one daughter? I mean, it's just explained that way. It's, we don't, it's not explained why. Or just, it just reads that way. It's just data that's given. He has one daughter. He sacrifices her. Why does Ibsen have 30? I don't know. There's some questions that we have. 
We always want explanations, don't we? We have the overarching explanation. God is sovereign over all things. But sometimes we want specific explanations. We want some sort of control. I think that's why paganism is such a draw for some people. That's why health, wealth, prosperity, self-help is a draw for people. Because people want control. But rather we trust in God. Henry says what a difference there was between Ibsen's family and that of his immediate predecessor, Jephthah. Ibsen had, has 60 children and all married. Jephthah but one, a daughter that dies or lives unmarried. Some are increased, others are diminished. Both are the Lord's doing. And we can be stable in his providential plan, even amongst all the tribulation that we endure. So we're stable in the plan of God. Then secondly, we can see that we're stable in the house of God. The instability in the land was as a result of instability in worship. The people were not singing on the same tune because they were not worshiping the same God according to his ways. They had different views, different things, different gods. There were tribal factions among one another. We certainly see this with the Danites later on and Micah and his idolatry that happens later. They're fighting over this one idol. So there's instability. And it's because they are not stable in the things of God. They are not seeking first, we could say, the kingdom of heaven. And I've made this pastoral observation a million bajillion times. The most stable people, not saying their life isn't filled with sorrow or can't have trial or not, they're never or they're always perfect. No, but the most stable and most healthy sheep are the ones who are faithful when it comes to the things of God. When it comes to worship, when it comes to the means of grace, they are the most stable when it comes to those things. So we have stability with God. We have stability in the house of God. We have stability with our Lord. And then thirdly and finally, this is where we'll close, we are stable in the salvation of God. Our stability is not in us. Our stability is in Christ, who is our rock and our salvation. All of the tragedy we see with Jephthah points ahead to what? Our triumph and joy, which is in Jesus Christ, who has come into the world and has overcome the world, has overcome the evil one. And as we've seen in John, we have overcome in him. He is our rock. He is our fortress. David says, Ammon is subdued, but there is the grave of Jephthah's only child. And there are the lifeless forms of once cocky Ephraimite militia. Whether from excess zeal or stubborn pride, tragedy overshadows the salvation Yahweh gave. I would wager that the writer meant to paint it so. I think he wants us to see Yahweh's deliverance tinctured by human foolishness and arrogance. It is as if even the winners can't have a clean win. We have salvation here, but a marred salvation. The writer is suggesting that if we seek a perfect salvation, we will have to look to one greater than Jephthah. Mm -hmm. And didn't that one greater than Jephthah say, I speak these things to you that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Well, let us pray. Our gracious God, we are thankful that you do humble your people. 
and that you do humble the proud and give grace to the humble. And we're thankful that you do so in many ways, uh, many times in a gentle way. You know that we need it. You know that we need to depend upon you more, need to rely upon you more, need to uh, make use of the means of grace more as we walk in this present age. And we're thankful for the promises of that new covenant, that we stand upon a firm foundation, that we stand upon Christ Jesus, that we stand upon the rock. And it doesn't matter whether the rains beat against us and the floods come up, we shall stand firm in Christ Jesus. So May we be a people who follow your ways. May we be a people who find stability in the things of God. And we ask and pray that you would be pleased to uh, help us to be a church that is growing together in the truth, growing together also in unity, united in the things of the truth. And where there might be discord, there might be quarreling, we know that you do hate discord. Uh, and we ask and pray that you would help those situations be resolved quickly, that people would be willing to yield, that we would be willing to admit our faults, uh, be gracious when we rebuke and reprove others, and that you give us wisdom as we um, have to have hard conversations, uh, even as the people of God. But we're thankful that you are with us. Thank we're thankful that you help us with that. We're thankful that even in hard situations like church discipline, where two or three are gathered, there you are uh, uh, with them. So pray that you would help us to know this, help us to rely upon you, help us to trust in you, help us to find our hope in you, we pray. And please forgive us of our pride and help us to trust in your ways. So thank you for all that you've taught us thus far in the book of Judges, hard things but good things. And we pray that you would help these things to resonate Help us to remember these things. Help us to carry the word in our hearts uh, as we go out about our lives over the next uh, several days and even as we come to gather on your Lord's Day. And we pray that that day would be a great day of rejoicing, a great day of blessing, and a great day of rest for your people. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen.